Today, we continue our decade series. 1991 turns to 1992, and what does that mean? That means the sequel to the giant Batman movie, Batman Returns. That means the death of Superman. Why did they kill him in the first place? Was it because Image Comics was born and dominated? And with seven comics, seven, seven comics, it becomes the number two comic book company. Do you think? That that had ramifications? Did people like seeing their favorite like talents gather together? They did, and not just in comics. Let's try the dream team. Magic, Larry, Michael. It's the summer of 1992, and they take basketball and the world by storm. We look at all of this extensively today on another episode of Observations. And here we are back again. You are listening to Rob Observations. I am your host, Rob Liefeld. We are in the midst of a series that I call the Decade Series because I feel like there is one year, one sequence, one 12-month span in every decade. Sometimes there's two, but there's at least one that shifts everything. Think of disco in the 70s and how it tilted everything on on, on its keister and, and shifted like the direction of music for the next five to six years. Uh, rap. We, we, we discussed what, what became known as grunge in the last episode, which came of age in 1991 with Nirvana, which then just broke open that Seattle scene. And you had Soundgarden, Pearl Jam, Stone Temple Pilots. I mean, it was an avalanche. The dam just broke wide open. These years, they come, they go, they have movies, they have television, music, and, in, and for our purposes, there's comic books. And, I, and I, I'm telling you today, with our part two of 1991, you're going you're gonna to really experience a year that just ripped it wide open and, in my opinion, set us up for everything that we're experiencing right now in 2022. It all started here on the second part of what we're doing here with 1991. We started 1991. I told you we're going to split it. We're going to cheat it. We're going to go June to June, June 1991 to June 1992, because that's where all of the change starts in the comic book world, which really, I mean, honestly, so much of what we talk about on observations here, if this is your first time listening, we discuss uh, pop culture via the comic book superhero lens of which there is so much of now. What's happened in the last week, the boys season three, Ms. Marvel. So new Marvel show, uh, the boys comes back on Amazon. Uh, we've got Dr. Strange still in theaters. Thor Love and Thunder is on the way. We just came from a spring where, where Batman roared back to life. Uh, comic books are, are part of comic book superheroes and the material, uh, are, are part of everything that is driving the culture. For instance, this morning, Black Adam, the trailer finally hit the passion project of Dwayne, the rock Johnson, who people like I was reading today. Just, just crazy notions. Like, like someone said, no, 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 this exists because there's an artist, this Photoshop guy who put the rock and black Adam together in a Photoshop, you know, picture that went viral on Instagram. And that's why this movie exists. And I'm like, no timeout here. Here's the article from movie web or whatever 
article that I put up from 2007. It was from 2007 when Dwayne The Rock Johnson had managed to uh, be part of the Shazam movie franchise. And they had uh, a director named Peter Siegel. He of Tommy Boy fame, no less. Pete Siegel was going to do Shazam. And they had cast and were already in preliminary talks because it's got its own press release, its own announcement. If you doubt me, go to my Twitter page. Uh, I'm at Robert Leifel on Twitter. I put it up. It's it's in my recent feed, and I, I I put the link. I just put the link right there. It's 2007, and it talks about Dwayne the Rock, the Rock Johnson lands the role of Black Adam for, from for 2000 from 2007. Okay, I mean check that out. I mean that that is a 15 year plus journey trying to get this Black Adam movie off the ground. But here's the thing that I pointed out: Black Adam has never had his own series. He had a miniseries. He had five issues in 2007 that ran in to, I think, a couple months in 2008. But that's it. That's it. And and DC did that knowing that they had a star looking at the role. So they did what comic book companies did. They put something in motion. They put something in motion that reflected suddenly the interest of this star, which if he goes on to make Black Adam spectacular then Black Adam is a brand new goldmine for this publisher and the studio that owns them. So the minor focus on Black Adam for the previous, you know, 50 years, Black Adam was created in 1945. He was in a, he appeared in one issue of the Marvel family as a kind of a potential stand-in for Captain Marvel, but he had a rogue nature about him. He is not seen again until they reprint that issue. I believe in 1975, a full 30 years passes. I come into contact with the character of Black Adam and I dig him. I like him. The Shazam comic book was a thing because on Saturday mornings for three seasons was Shazam. Captain Marvel, Billy Batson, we've covered it on this show, Saturday morning uh, uh, cartoons and how much they dominated the culture back then. Live action versions of some of your favorite comic book characters like with Shazam. And it was called Shazam. It was Captain Marvel, but the show was called Shazam. So DC put the comic book out to reflect it called Shazam. Now, the live-action show was a half hour. like It was always the last show here on the West Coast. It ended the morning of cartoons. It was always like a 10 to 10.30 or a 10.30 to 11. It was live-action. It was Billy Batson. He was wandering around. He'd, you know, encounter people who had difficulties in their life because Saturday morning cartoons, you really couldn't throw a punch. There was a limited amount of action. You could lift things. You could lift styrofoam rocks that looked real or push a tree or knock it down, but there was no fisticuffs whatsoever. But it was cool. It was cool seeing Shazam. He, they, had, they had two different actors that portrayed Shazam. He, both of them looked great. The Billy Batson uh, actor was fantastic. I never missed an episode. DC put out a comic book to coincide with the fact that this is on every Saturday morning, you know, for the fall, winter, and spring season of each of the seasons that it aired. And in issue 28 of Shazam, they had Black Adam flying straight straight at Shazam as they were both um, looking to collide on the cover. And I was like, oh, this is cool. I like the name, Black Adam. I like the character. But following that, Black Adam would make sporadic appearances battling Shazam or Superman in issues of DC Comics Presents, or he'd be in and out of Justice League or, you know, Justice Society stories, but he was never, he didn't have a giant spotlight on him ever. Even in the 2000s when they did their, uh, their, their, their spotlight 
on on Black Adam spinning out of whatever Justice Society story that was going on, and then later giving him a bit, an even bigger kind of showcase in the DC 52. But when I mean bigger showcase, I, he didn't get his own series. I mean, consider this. There's a character named OMAC. He stands for One Man Army Corps. OMAC. I loved him. He had eight issues. That is three more issues than Black Adam had, and there is no OMAC movie. But maybe if there was an actor who wanted to be OMAC, OMAC would be getting a giant $100 million treatment right now in the same way that the Black Adam is getting the treatment from The Rock. The Rock looked like Black Adam, so he has willed Black Adam into existence, and now this character who would honestly struggled to make the D-list at Marvel and DC, has his own giant multi-million dollar production, bringing in other D and C listers. And don't argue with me. You know this is true. Come on. These are not the, the upper top tier. E- even when Wall Street wasn't aware, we knew that Captain America and Thor and Iron Man were A-listers, okay? And X-Men and Spider-Man, they're A-listers, okay? And and the, and then you you kind of go down from there. Black Panther was a B lister, maybe a C lister at time, but now because of his movie, he's a he's an A lister. Ant Man was always a B or a C lister. Black Adam is like a level below that over at DC, but because he looked like The Rock and The Rock resembled him, and really the the, the characters that The Rock would be great at playing at different points in his career. Namor, he would have been a great Namor for Marvel. He would have been a really good Cable, and he's a great perfect maybe looks the most like Black Adam. So I've just given you all this time talking about a character that has not carried his own comic book for the last 70 years, does not have his own regular spotlight series feature, had a miniseries briefly, is mostly a complimentary character in most of the comic books that he's been in. And, and, and if you look at the Wikipedia page, which I did laugh at, I think he was the 17th, you know, voted the 17th most popular villain maybe it was 17th most popular dc villain uh you know so these are the statistics that black adam has brought to the table traditionally in the past but now that the rock is on it boom here we go iron man has never been the number one comic book this is not a slight on iron man iron man has had incredible incredible adventures i have omnibuses of some of the greatest iron man runs in the 80s, David Michelini, John Romita Jr., Bob Layton, later on Luke McDonald. And, and, and these are the stories that really shaped the first Iron Man with Obadiah Stane and, and, and especially that 2008 film. But Iron Man has made a billion dollars at the box office, but his comic book has never ranked number one, which means he's never really sold, like had a giant, you know, 260, 300,000 unit surge when, when it would have called for it. To be to chart number one. I mean, again, yes, consider who you're talking to, but Deadpool has charted number one. I, I he charted number one in 2017 in a $25 graphic novel that I wrote and illustrated. So, so Iron Man, interesting statistic. Robert Downey Jr. created this flippant personality, this this kind of witty uh, Tony Stark that did not exist on the page in any comic book. Tony Stark was always a little dark. I mean, there is a the most award-winning, critically acclaimed, kind of fan-favorite storyline that involved and featured Tony Stark was when he was battling alcoholism. The storyline is called Demon in a Bottle, and it was, we watched as readers as Tony Stark became less reliable and a danger to himself, especially when he was wearing the armor as he was drinking and, 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 and abusing, you know, all manner of different substances partying with women. I mean, he was really, they, they delved into this kind of darker side of his rich playboy self. 
you have not seen that aspect really carried out on screen. The Downey Jr. Iron Man is this witty, smartass, on par with like Peter Parker when 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 at peak Spider-Man mode. And, uh, and you know, I mean, you've seen it. All of the Marvel heroes eventually kind of turn into smartasses, a la Thor. Now, kind of Doctor Strange. So, I mean, it's, it's there's a flippant uh, portrayal of these characters that people really like. So, again, underscoring that we are in a comic book centric pop culture now, and that there are comic book projects, superheroes every day that are that are being shaped and uh, and 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 guided towards a new streaming series, a big budget movie. Uh, you know, a network television series. Certainly the CW has propped itself up over the last decade or more with so much in the DC catalog. So again, we routinely discuss all of this and I maintain that so much of it is a result of what we're about to discuss, which is 1991 part two. Because 1991 in comic books saw the back-to-back success of X-Force and X-Men, which as I told you with just the, the single issues alone, made Marvel 12 million in sales, 12, not 12 million dollars. They sold 12 million units. I mean, if they got a buck a book, it was 12 million, but they got more than a buck a book. I mean, they really went to town. I've told you guys, X-Force 2 sold 1.4 million copies. That's the attrition after 5 million of the first issue. And so, so which is really wonderful because each of the first X-Force issues, there's five trading cards. And the idea was that each edition sold a million copies. So the cable polybagged card edition is a million. The Deadpool polybagged card edition is, is a million. The group shot is a million. Well, for the second issue to hold firm and in and of itself do 1.4 million is a testament, again, to kind of what was going on at the time. The, 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 the popularity in X-Force 2 just has a cover, one single cover. And a cool story. And it was the return of Deadpool because we had to move him up because you guys loved him so much. I speak of these things that I know of because especially given the position that these books were in and, and the numbers that they were pushing, having been at the helm and seeing the data, sharing that data with you helps you also see the way that the comic book world was being shaped in terms of sales and numbers. Well, Jim Lee, myself, Todd had just exited to kind of go on a vacation. He and I did a crossover that began in X-Force 3 and crossed over to X-Force 4, and he, it was his last issue, maybe Spider-Man, was it 14, 15? But it was called Sabotage. And then Todd retired, and, and, and kind of I've covered all the different things that he was exploring at the time. He really wanted to start his own sports uh, trading card company that he called Front Row, because in his own words, why would you sit in the upper deck when you can be in the front row? And I, and I, I did that exactly how he used to say it. The front row, man, he was committed. But the hockey uh, license didn't go through. The NHL didn't pick it up. So it set his plans for world dominance via a killer trading card company back a little, just just a smidge because he would eventually get to that same place with his sports action figures. But he is off kind of making his next plans because in the same way that Jim and myself kind of came to the conclusion that what do you do after you do the best-selling run of X-Men? Or what do you do after you've introduced the world to all these characters and they sold 5 million copies? Do you do the Avengers? Do you do Fantastic Four? Not not right away. Not at that time. Uh, you know that we would both do those titles some five years later. But in 1991, it was how do we push you know, further, faster, higher? And uh, and it was it was by spreading our wings and... and 
combining our efforts and breaking off and doing this experiment called Image Comics. And all of those seeds were planted in late 1991. And there were a lot of different moving pieces and different moving parts. And I've gone through on dedicated Image Comics and especially the celebration of the 30th anniversary episodes and talked to you how Eric Larson, myself, Jim Valentino of Guardians of the Galaxy, of Spider-Man, myself of X-Force, we had already plotted to do our own independent line of comics. Uh, one of them was going to be a shared book where we all kind of share different stories, much the same that you received with Darker Image, which had a Jim Lee story in Deathblow, a Rob Liefeld Bloodwolf story, and a Sam Keith story that introduced you to the max. The idea was that that was going to carry on. We abandoned it because we then, because of the success of each of those characters, we decided to pursue Deathblow, Bloodwolf, and the max in their own capacity. And Darker Image kind of went to be this kind of one kind of cool one-shot anthology and, and it should have been so much more maybe maybe one day we'll get back to it and we'll do more with it but at the time that's how everything rolled out and again darker image i'm going to tell you right now you're not going to want to hear it because you say to rob this is all you ever say it sold over a million copies it sold over one million copies blew us away we did not see that coming it was supposed to be like a, a place where we could kind of scratch a little experimental itch Jim could do his Frank Miller kind of Sin City style with a kind of a military guy. I could do my little kind of wacky, you know, ode to Keith Giffen and Simon Beasley and, uh, and, 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 maybe, and, and, and try kind of a different art style, which I did. I used different kind of pins. I used technical pins, a, a deader line again, in the way that Jim was using a heavy brush stroke, brush line, brush utensils you know, uh, uh, tools. I was using different stuff than I would ink Youngblood with. I wanted to have a different look and a different feel. And, and, and of course, Sam Keith is, is coming from his superhero Marvel work and then kind of blossoming into this, um, kind of fantasy realm, uh, with his rendition of the max, his character, the max. So, you know, th this is all kind of stuff that would, you know, come, come down the way in regards to where we would eventually wind up and doing something in this anthology form, you know, like darker image, but, but that's the beauty of what we did with image comics. We were kind of, you know, going our own way. We were going to do our own thing. And, and the, the early prototype of darker image was Jim Valentino, Eric Larson, and myself, we're going to do kind of a shared anthology series with new characters. But then this really became an itch I needed to scratch. And as I've told you, I went first because I was the either the youngest, the dumbest, the boldest, I had the least to lose. Again, I've done dedicated podcasts on this and, and the reasonings why aren't as important. The, the big deal about 19, late 1991 turning into 1992 is that we went ahead and did this period. And we coalesced around each other and formed this unit together. I announced my first book. It was supposed to be the executioners. I put that ad in the comic book uh, newspaper called the comic book buyer's guide, otherwise known as the CBG. And it was a giant 11 by 17 fold out ad because the CBG came kind of folded like a magazine, but you unfolded it and read it like a newspaper. It was newspaper material, newspaper style reporting and format. And the executioners got me a call from Marvel, very upset, but it has the image logo on it. It has my image logo that I designed at the local uh, burger joint Brea's best on Brea Boulevard off Brea Boulevard and Imperial. Look, I just gave them a commercial off Brea Boulevard and Imperial in Orange County in, in the city of Brea. Brea's best. Uh, recently, the um, editor-in-chief of Marvel Comics, C.B. Sobolski, who is a giant comic book fan himself, who has passion, like I do, 
for this stuff and, and still has it even at his in his extended middle age, which is where we all kind of of this kind of grouping find ourselves now. He wanted me to take him there and show him and sit him in the booth. And, you know, I did a, rep, a replica on a napkin for him because I thought that would be fun. But it has apparently become the stuff of legends. And I'm happy to, you know, show anyone who who wants to drop by and also experience the great hamburgers, the pastrami sandwich, the onion rings, all of the amazing, uh, delicious, indulgent food that they have at Brea's Best. Oh, my gosh, I'm hungry now. I'm super hungry. I need their onion rings right now. They are so delicious. I brought some home that I hadn't eaten. And my son, my oldest was like, oh my gosh, dad, these onion rings. And I'm like, I know, right? So anyway, the image logo was on executioners. I get the call. People are mad, but we've, the, 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 now, now the, the cat is, you know, out of the bag and, and there's some animosity and what's this guy trying to do? Is he trying to use his platform? Yes. Yes. I am trying to use my platform. I'm trying to plan my next step. It's not out of animosity. I had a great time at Marvel, but really the challenges of what we were going to do next was what was gnawing at me the most. And, uh, I, I left behind the outline to the cable, uh, series that I was going to follow up with. That was the thing I was going to do next, but I decided to pursue my own, uh, path with the executioners, which then later pivoted and became Youngblood. Youngblood came out in April, 1992. We've been celebrating our, our 30th year anniversary, all of us in our own specific, um, you know, individual ways and manners. And, uh, and in, in, in the next couple of weeks, it'll be the 30th anniversary of Young of uh, I'm sorry of Prophet, who appeared in the pages of Youngblood number two, which was the third comic book published by Image. It went Youngblood one, Spawn one, Youngblood two, and uh, Prophet was really the showcase character in Youngblood number two, and that came out in July, the first week of July in 1992. So we really are coming up on the exact dates of these 30 year anniversaries. And uh, what followed is obviously Eric Larson's Savage Dragon, uh, Jim Lee's Wildcats, uh, Jim Valentino's Shadowhawk, Mark Silvestri's Cyberforce, and a couple of years down the line when he was able to do it was Wills Portacio's Wetworks. In between, you had Brigade, you had Supreme, you had Stormwatch, all the different spinoff books, Freak Force. We really uh, attacked this realm of, of kind of creator-owned with, with, as Todd would say, vim and vigor, vim and the vigor. And, uh, that's just fun to say, right? I mean, come on, say it together. Vim and vigor. And so, so we attacked it with the vim and vigor, uh, that, that, that only young, uh, kind of creative minds who were kind of bursting at the seams and trying to scratch as many inches as they possibly could. That, that, that's, that's what we approached it with. That's what we brought to the table. What we didn't expect, and, and 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 if we did, you have to look at it from a different lens. If we did expect it, we would have run things so much differently because there is the question of what if we actually had had our act together? What if we had actually banked some significant issues? What if every issue that we put out didn't have large gaps? What if there wasn't a long wait between Wildcats 1 and Wildcats 2, between Youngblood 1 and Youngblood 2, between, you know, all of the different launch books, between Cyberforce 1 and Cyberforce 2? I mean, we really did struggle to get our act together. But I want to say one thing, and I've been re-looking over these books, and the one thing I will say about the first year of Image Comics, which is, again, part of our uh, 1991 Part 2 discussion, is pulling from the June to June model, because if you get all the way to June, then you've already gotten Youngblood and Spawn, and you know that everything else is on the way. Eric Larson, Savage Dragon also comes out during that time. So Image Comics has landed, and by landed, I mean millions of sales, 
the kind of sales that no one saw coming. And the reason I just keep emphasizing these to you is, is it really just shows the, the, uh, the, the, the massive scale of success that the image books achieved because we saw numbers that no one was getting at the time. Okay. Uh, Yumbo did not get outsold in April. Spawn did not get outsold in June. Um, you know, Youngblood 2 sold a million copies. Every issue of Youngblood for the first year sold over a million copies. And that's because of you guys. What I wanted to say, what I wanted to give a kind of a side uh, commentary was, upon looking at all these books, Cyber Force again, Wildcats again, the first few issues of Savage Dragon, Shadowhawk, uh, Youngblood, Spawn. These are really good books. I would not change anything in them. Every single page in Youngblood is a page that I'm really proud of and it came out exactly the way I wanted it to and I was trying to push the envelope as much as I could and give you the most exciting uh, kind of entry level story to get to know my characters as I possibly could I look at Spawn I see innovation I see brilliant uh, illustration drawing page design uh, by, by Todd I look at Savage Dragon and I see just Eric Larson's work on hyper mode, taking it up even a, a step further from the excellent work, the outstanding work that he was doing on the, both Amazing Spider-Man and the Spider-Man book that he took over for Todd. Both times he had to follow Todd. But the books, the, the Jim Lee stuff, the Wildcats, every single page is peak Jim Lee. Every single page on of Cyberforce is peak Mark Sylvester. Youngblood is peak Rob Liefeld. Spawn is peak Todd McFarlane. We really brought our very best our, our very best layouts, our very best character designs, our, our very best, you know, story elements, uh, production values. And there, there is not a single book I look back and scratch my head and go, ah, I would have gone a different direction. I love every single panel, every single frame, every single figure. And it's across the board. Like I said, whether it's Wildcats, whether it's Cyberforce, Youngblood, Spawn, Dragon, uh, just all of it. Supreme is a really fun book. I had kind of downgraded Brigade in my head. And then I looked at it over and I'm like, this book is so fun and exciting. And and, and, and as we are currently remastering that book in the same way that we are remastering uh, remastering Profit number one, which comes out in July, you should look for both of these. Uh, the Brigade number one remastered uh, comes out in, uh, in August. And it's fun getting... Um, you know, young talent together and executing this. And, and one of the things that applies to this very podcast is that as I am hiring some of the greatest new, fresh talent that's in the comic book business right now, whether it's Clay Mann or Victor Bogdanovich or VK Mar V Ken Marion or Philip Tan, uh, Ed Piscor, all these guys, when they hand in their work, they tell me how excited they were to contribute to a comic that was one of their favorites as a kid. Some of them were 9, 10, 11 when they picked Profit up and Brigade up. And now they're contributing all new visions, all new versions of these comic books that they love. They're getting a chance to retell uh, and contribute pages to stuff that they held in the highest regard. So it's it's funny because it's not something that I counted on. I'm calling these guys up, figuring they're extremely busy. They can't be bothered. They'll never be able to fit me in. And instead they're like, I'd love to do it. I can't wait to do it. I'll do it today and turn it into you like tomorrow. And that's exactly what's gone on with all these pages. And they're fantastic. They're amazing. And it speaks to the uh, favor that that era has in, in, in their minds and in their hearts and, and the connection that they have to, to the year one image comic books. And it's really 
just the most fun to to experience this. But as you know, Image and all of its success, Youngblood followed by Spawn, followed by Dragon, followed by Wildcats, followed by Shadowhawk, Cyberforce, like I said, all these titles. What happened was it tilted the balance of power in the industry. We did not see that happening. We did not on any level see that happening. I've talked to this about about this very subject in, in much greater detail on some of the dedicated image podcast episodes of Rob Observations that I highly recommend you you hunt down and check out because there's a different level of information of uh, behind the scenes with, with those. And, and that's not really where my head's at today. It's really about that the coalition of what we did created this tsunami of success that frankly turned the comics industry on its ear. And you're like, Liefeld, how do you mean? What do you mean? Well, if you're new to the podcast, I'll tell you that in August of 1992, we were the number two comic book companies with, with how many comics do you think we, it took to achieve that? I'll tell you, it was seven. It was seven comics, seven comics. And, and so, so you've got Wildcats, you've got Cyberforce, you've got Shadowhawk, you've got Savage Dragon, and you've got Spawn. But then you've got Youngblood Zero and Youngblood Four are both partaking in this particular experiment, uh, which which is going to have a a coupon to redeem for a special Image Comic Zero, which we delivered the next year. So we had our own version of an incentive plan, but it was coupons, and you had to get all these comics to get the coupon to get the special book, and we achieved that. We did that, but with seven comics, we sold more units. We moved more units and made more money for the distributor who ranks all the different families than DC Comics did with their 50 comics, with their Batman, their Legion, their Titans, their Flash, their Green Lantern, their Supermans, their Wonder Womans. We became the number two comic company in the comic book industry with seven titles. And it shook, it shook the industry. And what happened is DC retrenched almost immediately and we heard all of the different tales and it's weird. There's, there's kind of been this re there's, there's, there's been a couple guys who have tried to say that that's not the way it happened, except I'm like, no, no, no. One guy actually forgets. He told me exactly how it happened, but it's almost like, it's like, we don't want to give image the credit for doing this stuff. We want to have come up with this on our own. And that's not true. They killed Superman. They decided to kill Superman in a dramatic event in November of 1992 as a result of the August shellacking that DC took. Because imagine you're in your offices and you have your corporate overlords that you answer to. And again, when they come out and they go, hey, whoa, 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 what happened? We're number three. DC dropped from two to three. And you're telling me this company with seven comics put us behind it in its rearview mirror. So now it goes Marvel, Image, DC, yes. And DC was struggling to find some excitement during this time, struggling to find inspiration. But what happens, as it is in every industry, when something is working, it inspires greater competition. You know, there's there's now books coming out routinely about the NBA and how the three-point line has changed the game. While my both my boys did extensive travel ball, uh, my, my one son got to travel and, 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 and play for one of the elite clubs in Los Angeles called the Compton Magic. And uh, that was a completely different experience. Most travel ball clubs you pay into. Some of you who have kids who have travel ball baseball clubs 
travel ball basketball, you have travel soccer, okay? You pay the fees, you 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 pay all this stuff. Well, with the Compton Magic, my son was told, no, 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 no. You're, you're basically being supported by Adidas. We're an Adidas-run company. You're going to get all manner of Adidas gear, Adidas shoes. My son was so thrilled with all the kicks that he was getting. But I saw immediately um, all the gear, all the gear that he was getting. It was, it was insane. It was so much fun. That was a really fun two-year period. Uh, and it really kind of closed out his particular chapter on athletics because then he pivoted to a different kind of point of interest. But he was good enough to win his audition and get put on a, a top two travel ball team in all of Southern California that has promoted and created great professional players in the Compton Magic. Well, during that period of time, the three-point shot was instituted in a manner that, you know, suddenly I would go to practice and the center, the center, the traditional, you know, six foot ten, seven foot guy is being told by the coach you have to hit these shots on the three-point line. You have to knock down the three-point shot. This also extended to high school where suddenly uh, my oldest son, now entering into his junior year, his friend who is a traditional big man, traditional center, was also being told, shoot the three, shoot the three. The three ball has become, you know, not just a complimentary aspect or, or tool, you know, in the toolbox in the NBA. It is the primary weapon used to bury teams, to extend leads, to put games out of reach. One team sh- shoots it well, then 10 teams try to implement it and shoot it well. And it really is the new equalizer in the game of professional basketball. Well, in any competitive business right now, we're all um, kind of watching Top Gun to exceed each and every expectation that was put upon it. My uh, Another one of my children, because the one thing teenagers want to do is they want to you know exert to you as the adult, how much you, in this case me, are out of touch and how much more they know than you. If you have older teens, young adults in your house, you understand what I'm talking about. One of my children told me that in no way, shape, or form was Top Top Gun Maverick going to be a hit because I was a boomer, and which I'm a Gen Xer, but you know, it's fun to call me a boomer and people my age. He said, "This this is just appealing to all you dads. All you dads, that's all that's all that's gonna see it. Well, that may be true, but I was reading data today from the Hollywood Trades that said one of the reasons that Top Gun is exceeding is all of the anticipated people who were supposed to show up and see it in the first weekend, the people who were 35 and older, and it was being driven fifty, I think fifty-eight percent of its opening weekend audience was thirty-five and older, and that crowd normally makes up twenty to twenty-five percent of an audience for a film, for a hit film, for a Marvel film. So on Top Gun, it's double that. It's it's 58%, okay, is, is showing up in that age group. And that age group is not supposed to show up and see movies. They become too accustomed, and they're right. I'm one of them to, you know, watching, streaming at home and not getting off their ass and getting to the theater. But week two, they said, the reason week two had the lowest drop of any movie that ever opened a hundred million dollars. So, so basically in the last 20 years plus is because the next audience found it, the audience that wasn't anticipating seeing it, the audience that wasn't looking forward to it, heard word of mouth, heard how good it was and said, well, now 
I guess we need to say, we want to be part of this. We want to be part of this conversation. We want to know what's going on. We want to know why this movie is so popular. And so now they're going to see it. I love the data. I love the numbers within the numbers. So what's happening is, and I was told this today by my buddy who's an executive of one of the major studios, like they're going, they're, the, the, the signal that the studios have taken from this is that they need to go back through their catalogs and see what movies from the mid 80s that haven't had sequels should be given sequels. Even on Twitter, they're like, is it, is it, is it Jaws? Is it Close Encounters? You know, which of these films from the mid-80s, is it Goonies? You know, which one of these, is it E.T.? Which one of these movies deserves its own legacy sequel and would do business on par with Top Gun? And here's the deal. The big ingredient that you need when trying to chase what's going on with Top Gun is Tom Cruise. And the franchise Top Gun. They are both kind of in their own category, but the lesson being learned or the the information that rival studios are taking is how can we skip steps? How can we follow in, in these footsteps and repeat this pattern? Because that's what happens when you have success. Everyone analyzes it and they bring their version of what they think is the reason that that success occurred and try and replicate it. So Image Comics with its bold, blustery success in becoming the number two comic company in August of 1992, really redirected DC's focus. And they just said, well, what can we do? What can we do to stand up and, and move units and compete? And, I mean, they borrowed from all sources. It's a poly-bagged special issue, special edition of Superman that they were marking with the death of Superman and the bloody, you know, the blood, the bloody... Superman signal, uh, Superman chest emblem, you know, bleeding across a black plastic bag. Very effective imagery. But the idea to hatch Doomsday, this villain from outer space, come and trash the Justice League on his way to getting to Superman in this giant fight and eventually killing Superman. Get a ton of media attention, which it did. And it drove people to stores in November of that week when, when Superman died. In tremendous fashion. That doesn't happen unless they feel the need to, to compete with us on a large level because they have to, because they can't look the other way and ignore us anymore. So with DC Comics, it was like, well, we don't really care about Youngblood and Spawn and all their individual success, but when, when we all generated such tremendous sales in the month of August 1992 to knock them to number three, that was a full panic button. And it wasn't just Superman. As you know, they broke Batman's back shortly after that. And this set in line, this very dark period with giant manipulative media stunts that really worked. The bottom line is they worked. They sold a ton of units. But did DC hunker down and go, we have to counteract what's going on with these image guys? And here's the deal. We weren't worried about it and we didn't counteract their counteract. We just kept doing what we were doing because we liked what we were doing. But the fact that we had the success that we had pivoted towards DC having to get really serious about selling multiple comic books. And so then, you know, Superman goes on to do like 2.7 million, 2.7 million copies. It, it doesn't leap over Spawn, um, I'm sorry, Spider-Man. It doesn't leap over the Marvel records of Spider-Man, X-Force, and X-Men. But it does outsell all the image launch books. And it does generate giant revenue. And it leads into a really well-coordinated, maybe the best kind of extended year-long crossover, the reign of the Superman, all marching towards bringing Superman back. But 
bringing Superman back was extremely underwhelming and it and, and the orders um, were way off. People ended up eating massive amounts of that book because, and it is, as one retailer shared with me, people don't like the returns of things as much as they like the tearing down of things. And we know that. We know that. If it bleeds, it leads. That is a real world fact. That is something that was used to be said in the newsroom. You know, if there's violence and blood, it's going to make the headline. It's going to make the top of the newscast because it draws our attention. So what happened in 1992 with Image Comics set DC on a new kind of, let's call it a corrective course. It woke them up. It, 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 it generated a brand new focus for them. They, they needed to get in the game and, and, and their answer was these giant media driven events, but they were well managed. They were well executed. There is no criticizing them whatsoever. I, I think they were extremely well done. It was exciting. It was exciting to be part of it. It was exciting to know that because we did what we did and left Marvel and became our own entity, you know, that DC then refocused and reshaped. Now, there are other after effects, as I told you, the computer coloring that we invested in with our millions of dollars that we made off our millions of sales of our X-Men titles between Jim Lee and myself and then Todd and all of the millions of dollars that Spider-Man made him off royalties. Royalties was a big, big deal. And again, the most important editor-in-chief that Marvel ever had is Jim Shooter because he made it possible for artists and writers to get a percentage of their comic sales. Without that... I don't think we're in the business that we're in, period, at all, because page rates are hard to live by. But every publisher will gladly take a flyer on, hey, if on the back end, this makes a ton of money, we'll cut you in on a small portion. That portion to a to an artist is huge. And in our case, it bankrolled entire companies. It bankrolled the ability to get talent and, and, and hire them away and put them in offices and studios. And in my case, you know, I even rented a house. I'm sorry, I bought a house and rented it out to uh, Extreme Studios uh, talent that was relocated, whether it was from Chicago or, or, or San Francisco or from New Jersey. We relocated as many people as possible and had a dedicated house that people kind of went through and got a room in called like the Extreme House. And then a lot of guys like a Jeff Matsuda stayed there for a few weeks, made a ton of money drawing his first few assignments for Extreme Studios. And then he bought his own house and he bought his own car and he was on his way to his own new level of success because he earned it. He did the work. He could do almost two books a month. And at the rates that we were paying him, he was able to kind of get this new element of financing for a brand new lifestyle that a young man like himself hadn't experienced prior. So, wow, huge changes. The amount of talent that we were able to bring in. For myself at Extreme Studios, it was Jeff Matsuda, it was Chap Yap, it was Marat Michaels, it was Dan Frege, it was Danny Mickey, it was John Sabal, it was Marlo Alkaiza, it was Larry Stucker, it was Richard Horry. I mean, I can go on and on and on. At Wildstorm, it was J. Scott Campbell, it was Brett Booth, it was Richard Friend, it was, uh, you know, uh, Scott Clark, it was... I mean, there, there's just so much. It's it's a staggering amount of talent over at, at Top Cow. It was Dave Finch. You know, it was Joe Weems. It was D-Tron. Uh, eventually, Mike Turner. Again, b- because of what happened in 91 with those X-Men books, which then allowed us to finance our dreams in 92, the studio systems, the Image Comics labels, uh, grow exponentially because we have the ability to hire uh, talent and put them to work kind of drawing our dream assignments. And and a lot of these guys, these are their first books that they're cutting their teeth on because there are people who have said in the past, well, it's, I thought Image was about creator-owned. Yes, we are. For guys who have established 
you know, names that can carry weight in the business. And that's why the door was open to guys like Larry Stroman and Mark, uh, I'm sorry, and Mike Grell and Dale Keown and Sam Keith, marquee names who came in with their own stuff that kept it on themselves. We just distributed it and took a smile, a small minute fee, not even a percentage, but the new guys who needed to cut their teeth, of course they were going to cut their teeth on our characters, on our stories. And that's how it was, you know, uh, kind of the, the intent of what we were bringing to the situation. And I've always said, I would have loved to have a studio that I could have thrived of in Orange County, but there was no one. I couldn't meet no one in comic books until the very late eighties. So I, I wanted to have my own, what, you know, clubhouse. And so did Jim and so did Mark. And, and that's what came of these clubhouses, these studios, and they poured tons of talent that are, you know, in the last 20 years have made their way to giant Marvel books. And they've been the artists on X-Men and Superman and, and Batman and Spider-Man and all manner of different exciting comics. And we kind of were able, we were able to kind of grow them, home grow them under our studio systems. The DC after effect is huge, but it doesn't just end there. Nothing really was driven with the title blood. But when Youngblood came out and did what it did, the summer of 92, two annual events were announced. These books that were going to come out in July and August. New Blood was an annual event. Bloodlines was an annual event. Both publishers publishing a blood-themed movement. Crossover stories, new characters. And that is absolutely an attempt to simultaneously cash in on what was going on with Youngblood and dilute it. Because as I've shared with you before, a marketing rep named Bob Wayne at DC Comics proudly told us, we're going to kill that whole zero issue movement you got because we're going to do one month where every comic book is a zero. And it comes out of a giant crossover called Zero Hour. So you guys can forget about doing special zero books anymore. And it was said with the kind of contempt that I'm bringing to this microphone right now as he is sipping on his beer, as he is spitting this out to us at San Diego. Did you know that Age of Apocalypse, a crossover that you love and is beloved, is a result of the success of Image Comics? Scott Lobdell and my former editor Bob Harris told me they huddled together. We have to blunt, kind of stop what's going on over with the Image guys who now... By 93, 94, there's no looking back. We are part of the establishment. And this is a a coalition of guys who had been, you know, told that from the outset we were doomed. We were not going to last. We were not going to stay together. And everything that people doubted about us only um, made us stronger and in the end united us to the point where I still have so many of these catalog, this catalog of characters, I created so many characters and so many titles that even if I only have control over, you know, two thirds of it, that, 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 that the, if, if I only have 66, you know, and a half percent of what I created, it's, it's, it's enormous. It's, it's immense. You know, Jim created all of those characters and used it and sold it to DC in route to becoming an executive there. Um, but the stuff that we did had future ramifications and the inspiration that we took in creating these worlds and titles continue to pay off today as I can do something like a profit remastered and get all these great talents to redraw uh, a, a, a first issue of profit, which sold 800,000 copies, 
gigantic amount of copies. And, 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 and it has a giant fan base. Someone today said, why is Youngblood number 220 bucks on eBay? I can get them for a dollar anywhere. Well, if you can, please do and tell, tell me where I can get them because I'll go buy 100 or 200 or 500 for a dollar. They're, they're not what you say they are. They're harder to come by than you think. 30 years of inventory. Some guys finally looked at their box of excess image books and they threw them in a dumpster. And they told me they did. They're like, yeah, I probably shouldn't have done that. But it, was, it was an impulse thing. I just need to clean out. And your books were the first to go. And this is stuff they did 10 years ago, 15 years ago. And now they wish they had that case back because whatever they paid at 250, you know, 50% of $2.50 back in 1992, if it's going for 20 bucks now, that, that markup is fantastic. But it's like, again, there's always a, but why are these special? There were so many of them. Well, yes, there were at the time, but this is 30 years ago. But the, the, the fact that there were so many of them speak to the wide audience and the memory and the, the kind of the, uh, the, I'll call it the comic book muscle memory that they have with fans who immediately spark to this stuff. So that's the DC and the image of it and the Marvel of it, the bloodlines, the new blood and, and Marvel went together, went, went, went forward with a really good, you know, mutant crossover in, in, in summer and in fall of 1992, the executioner song based on a lot of the, you know, outlines that Jim Lee and I had left behind and it completely focused and, and, and was, you know, really hyper focused on my cable strife dichotomy the, the 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 relationship that i had established with both of them revealing that strife was actually an evil clone of cable as i did in new mutants 100 x-force number one and that became the focal point of that summer's that fall crossover and that was also extremely well executed i think everybody sat up straight everybody did better work like i told you every single one of those first year image comic books by every single talent and all the different studios are fantastic they're excellent they are they are wonderful but what's the downside of all this? The downside of all this is that over time, and this was even touched upon in an article that went up earlier this week, that artists have never been able to regain the spotlight in the way that they did because the companies don't trust that the amount of attention that they shine on artists and the favor that fans have with them, that if they do it too much, they'll burn them. They'll use them as the launch pads that, that they figured that we use them for, except Again, I need to go back and tell you, I did, you know, two dozen New Mutants X-Force themed comics. I mean, if I started on 87 of New Mutants, and that's not counting the annuals and and, and the special fill-ins, uh, and then you go all the way to, you know, X-Force 10, um, and then you throw double-sized issues in there, uh, you know, that that's 24, 25 issues worth of work. So this wasn't just a six issues and gone. We put in the work. We put in the time. And along the way, like I said, there's New Mutants annuals. There's Spider-Man annuals. There's issues of what if. There's 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 Marvel Comics Presents stories. Uh, there's X-Men fill-ins, X-Factor fill-ins. I mean, with Todd, it's it's Incredible Hulk. And then his Spider-Man and a few fill-in jobs along the way. Same with Eric Larson. Some Hulk, some Amazing Spider-Man, some Spider-Man. Uh, Jim Punisher, X-Men. We all put on our time. We all established a bond with the fans. But nowadays, artists aren't allowed to do excessive uh, extended runs. And it's always been whispered that it is because the big two publishers don't want to establish giant beachheads of talent that can then turn around and leave them again. And, and not only leave them, but compete with them. Compete with them and put them in a, in a place where they're like, oh my gosh, you know, we've created another six Frankenstein monsters. Now here's where I'm going to pause and kind of close the books on the 1992 image comics of it all before we pivot away to what else was going on 
in, in the world of sports and in the world of entertainment. I do believe that image will never happen again. There were a couple times that I thought we could see a coalition of certain talents that were doing extremely well in the early 2000s, but they were too hesitant. They didn't kind of unite at the apex of all of their heat. And as a result, they've all cooled off. They weren't replaced by another coalition just like them. It was guys who did even less work and did even less amounts of meaningful kind of runs on these big characters that fans pay attention to in order to then turn around and capitalize on it. So so I do not believe that Image Comics will ever, ever, ever occur again. I truly do not believe and see that in the future. I do think that, that there was a couple of missed opportunities. There was two different opportunities in the early 2000s that a coalition of six or seven artists who really had found some significant favor with the fans uh, could have broken off with their own characters, their own universes, their own kind of uh, coalition and done extremely well. But, and here is the big, big but. We, Image Comics, would not have happened uh, given today's social media uh, existence. I've, I've said it before, and I'm going to go into a little more in-depth here today. That had Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, you know, been around, I do not believe for one second that both uh, Jim Lee and then possibly secondarily Mark Silvestri would have come. Todd and myself and Eric and Valentino uh, were fairly made up in our minds of what we wanted to do. We saw the advantages. We, we were willing to take that risk. But some guys in the business are a lot more influenced by the different voices and let's say the polling. The polling. What do the polls say? And with the voices that are out today, do you really think that Jim Lee could have left X-Men and walked into an unknown kind of correlation, uh, 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 you know, with, 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 with fellow peers without fans losing their mind? No, Jim, don't leave. Don't leave. No, Jim, I won't follow you if you do. Stay, stay, stay. He had a hard enough time reconciling the leaving in the first place. I've shared with you that Todd and I found out after the fact because Jim told us that the publisher, the editor-in-chief, and two significant editors, one being the X-Men editor, flew to intervene with Jim and ask him not to leave and, and talked him into giving him a better deal and maybe his own label at Marvel. But Jim, to his credit, stuck to his guns. And the reason I'm saying all this is because Image really did need all seven of us. That is what made us special. To remove any piece of that seven is to you know tinker with the success that we had. And I really, truly believe that we absolutely needed all seven at the time. I thought, oh, we, we don't need everybody. We can do it with five or four. No, it was seven. Seven changed the world. Seven made this, the giant impact that, that we did. And so if you take away even one sliver of that, it doesn't work. And I believe in the world that we live in now with social media and all the comments. And Jim, what are you doing hanging out with those guys? Oh, Jim, why are you doing that? Jim, why would you leave X-Men? I love you. I love you so much. He was more susceptible to that. This is, this is my opinion. This is my personal opinion based on what I knew then and why he was the last to weigh in. He was very uh, trepidatious about moving forward with us. He had comfortability at Marvel, and people who get comfortable, it's hard to move them. It was a level of comfortability. And I do believe in this age of social media, it would have been immovable. He would have been um, far too cautious, and and upon getting the brush back, because we, we, we've seen how... The, the 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 social media works when it wants to tribe up and 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 
and become extremely tribal and send messages, it freaks people out. And, and, and to kind of move past that, it takes a different kind of uh, 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 composure. And I am telling you, based on everything that I know, given the place that both Jim and Mark were at in 1992, had social media happened, this wouldn't have come together. So that, that that's, that's kind of really my, my firm belief. And the fact that the talent, the big marquee names that could have pulled it off uh, are, are, are no longer um, capable of, of moving the needle in that way. And the hesitation, uh, you know, really kind of broke the fever and, 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 and following that they didn't really add to kind of the, the prestige around their names, given these artists in the 2000s who could have pulled this off once they decided not to do this, you know, union of artists and, and launch their own label and kind of mimic what we did with image. Once they paused on that, none of them really did the significant amount of work that put them on top. I'm not going to say names. I'm just going to keep it to myself. Why would I try and stir any pots whatsoever? But this is what I really feel in the bottom of my heart. I really feel I know that this is the case. But anyway, what else was going on in 92 and 91? Like we said, we had Terminator 2. We had Silence of the Lambs. We had Jonathan Demme and Jim Cameron schooling everyone with amazing storytelling, with amazing uh, amazing techniques, uh, you know, technical uh, uh direction, lighting, special effects, just, I mean, absolute excellence on every level from James Cameron, Jonathan Demme. I mean, movies that really absolutely uh, move the needle in, in, in magnificent, just magnificent ways. Now, here's the deal. That same kind of level of excellence in uh, that we were encountering in 1991, and again, in case, uh, like, like 1991, T2, Robin Hood, Silence of the Lambs, City Slickers, Home Alone, Dances with Wolves was still playing strong all the way through. So much so, even though it was released in November of 1990, it was the number seven movie of 1991, Dances with Wolves was. Sleeping with the Enemy, you know, Disney's Beauty and the Beast, you know, Martin Scorsese's Cape Fear. I mean, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles hit the cinemas in March 22nd, 1991. 91 was a really good year for some really fun and 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 and, and uh, influential movies with great directors. Jonathan Demme, like I said, Martin Scorsese, and of course, the monumental achievement that James Cameron brought to T2. But in 1992, some of you may, you know, get a little touchy about this, but as good as I think Batman 2 was, I don't hold it in the same kind of really vaunted hollowed consideration that I, that I give to, to Terminator and to the, the work James Cameron did, but your top three movies of 1992, do you even remember them? It's Batman returns. It's home alone Two: lost in New York. That should tell you right now. because Home alone Two did not do it for me. I loved home alone. The first one is so inspired and so brilliant, but the second one was such an obvious, just cash in on the concept. It's your number two movie for 1992. Your number three movie is a threequel. It is the sequel, the third sequel to the Lethal Weapon franchise, Lethal Weapon 3. Lethal Weapon 3 is a really fun movie. I, I, do, I don't doubt for one minute my love for the entire series and all the installments, but that's your third best movie. Sister Act is your fourth movie. Aladdin is your number five movie. 
continuing down Wayne's World, very big deal, big big breakthrough movie, points for originality on, on Wayne's World. Basic Instinct, got to tell you, fantastic, fantastic movie. I mean, Verhoeven, Joe Esterhaus, uh, I mean, Basic Instinct, I mean, literally set Michael Douglas up for this incredible run of, of same styled kind of movies after this because it had been a little while since Fatal Attraction, but man, Basic Instinct just juiced him. Just, it was like a lightning bolt, boom, zapped him with all the juice and he was, he just powered on out of there. And of course, Sharon Stone became a megastar. A League of Their Own, really well done movie. Penny Marshall, one of her best, I think. Christmas of 1992, Thanksgiving and Christmas brought the massive tidal wave that was The Bodyguard. Okay, and the number 10, what do you think the number 10 movie is? Well, it's not Bram Stoker's Dracula, which is a badass movie. Coppola, full on flexing. I love that movie, but that's that's number 12. The number 10 movie is The Hand That Rocks the Cradle, Rebecca de Mornay as the nightmare uh, babysitter. Okay, so so what I just gave you in Batman Returns, Home Alone 2, Lethal Weapon 3, Sister Act, Aladdin, Wayne's World, Basic Instinct, A League of Their Own, The Bodyguard, and The Hand That Rocks the Cradle is not a kind of stellar who's who of movies. Big stars kind of were born. Obviously, Mike Myers begins a you know huge film career off of Wayne's World that would later give us Austin Powers and so much more. Lethal Weapon, Mel Gibson, Donner, Glover, Pesci, I mean, awesome franchise, great franchise, super fun. But really, when that's your number three movie, and when Home Alone, when Home Alone two, I mean, is your is your is your number two movie of the year? Was it really that great of a movie? Okay, Batman Returns, we all remember with, and 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 as we should, for Michelle Pfeiffer's turn as Catwoman and Danny DeVito as the Penguin, and they're magnificent, and they're fun, and there's parts of Batman. Batman Returns that I think are even superior to the original Batman film. It was obviously very well received. It was the number one movie. You know, uh, Michelle Pfeiffer was fantastic, transformative in that role. And Danny DeVito has never, ever been creepier. Whatever your thoughts, it doesn't matter. Batman Returns was a giant mega success. But it didn't have the same cultural impact like a T2 did. Um or even a Dances with Wolves, which then kicks down the door and brings in all of the Westerns. Batman did not start a superhero resurgence. You didn't get a follow-up Superman movie. You didn't get a Wonder Woman movie, a Green Lantern movie, and the Marvel movies wouldn't really punch through until 2000. And then, boom, it was all downhill from there. I mean, when I mean downhill, I mean the the boulder was rolling. All the momentum uh, happened, and it was just smooth sailing after X-Men and then Spider-Man, and then boom. But Batman Returns... Because I would meet with executives at the time and they'd be like, oh, well, Batman's successful because it was a TV show. They immediately, and I'm telling you guys who are running Paramount, guys who are running Sony, guys who are running Disney, guys who are running Universal, I met with all of them about the potential of comic book movies, but they'd be like, well, really, Batman, the Batman films are really successful because of the Adam West show and that they're they're really, you know, cashing in on that audience. And I'd be like, okay, you can't, you're not going to convince them otherwise. And for me to try would be just a waste of my breath. But what I'm trying to say is Batman really, those movies were good for Batman and they didn't have a whole lot of after effect. They certainly didn't go into green lighting 1997's Blade, okay? It wasn't, that there was no coattails from those movies. The coattails were reserved for Michelle Pfeiffer, Michael Keaton, Danny DeVito, and of course, Tim Burton. So interesting year in film, but I'm going to tell you the, and I'm going to wrap this up real tidy. What, what happened that year in sports? 
And it really is an interesting kind of dichotomy parallel uh, uh, to what happened with Image Comics. Because we had been losing in the Olympics and not bringing what we believe was our best in, 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 in regards to our professional players and, and, and in, a, in, in a sport that we really created, we're getting punked on the worldwide stage. This is when the Dream Team was born. In the summer of 1992, Magic Johnson, Michael Jordan, Larry Bird, Charles Barkley, Carl Malone, John Stockton, you guys know all the rest. They created the Dream Team, the Super Team. And their coming together was the stuff of legends. And it was a mashup, a team-up of superstars of the NBA in the same way that Image Comics was a mashup, a team-up of superstars of comic books. Because, again, what I'm telling you happened in 1991, I'm sorry, 1992, which is the second part of our 1991 series. When you went and bought a Spawn number one, you were buying a Todd McFarlane number one. When you bought a Youngblood number one, you bought Rob Liefeld number one. Wildcats, Jim Lee, number one, Dragon, Eric Larson, number one. There was no fan base for Youngblood or Spawn or Wildcats. What you hoped was that you were getting the best of each creator. And by coalescing together, being, you know, bringing our might together in one form, we became the comic book dream team. At the same time, during the same summer, that my personal favorite, you know, version of, of this is the first version that, you know, there'd obviously be many to follow with Kobe and Carmelo and LeBron later on down the line and all the different, I mean, we, even one of our dream teams lost, which then made us double down and, and, and commit to, you know, not letting that happen again after the early 2000s embarrassment. But the 1992 dream team of Magic and Larry and Michael, those were the three giant standouts that made the whole thing work, that drew the attention of the entire world. The, the, the games had tremendous ratings, even though most of them were giant blowouts. But the fact that you got to see Michael and Magic and Larry and Carl and the rest all together wrapped in red, white, and blue, you know, patriotic gear, uh, all of the Dream Team merchandise, the, the, the games, the practices were extremely well rated, uh, big, big eyeballs, big audience really uh, an interesting parallel the exact same year the exact same summer that saw um two different groups of superstar you know uh, uh talents come together to create a giant movement a memorable movement that that to this day is celebrated and acknowledged in the um you know in the best possible way and and, and really moves people uh, emotionally the, the, the comics of Image Comics, the comics that came out in 92, the comics that dominated the scene, that influenced so much, that that, that influenced crossovers to, to, to follow, giant media events that followed, annual events, characters suddenly with the word blood in them. That is the result of all of us jamming together, which is why I go back and say it had to be all of us together. And in, and in hindsight, I see it now as clear as I've ever seen. But with the Dream Team, the same thing. What if Magic wasn't on the team? Does the team have the same impact? I've seen those tapes. I've watched the practices. I know that Michael was dominant, but Magic brought so much, especially being on the other side of the AIDS fear that he had been able to quell and overcome uh, given that, that, that there had been some time that passed and there wasn't the same kind of hesitation and judgment. The Dream Team of comics and the Dream Team of basketball both left an indelible mark on the summer of 1992 and both are held in high regard still to this day 
and with tremendous affection. And I know I've received some of it and I know I give some of it to the dream team. I know I receive some of it as being part of image comics. So again, the movie end of the things of, of things weren't all that interesting and tremendous. And really when you go back and you look at this music scene of 1992, it's more Pearl Jam, Stone Temple Pilots. The Seattle scene really bursts. R&B really expands as well. And you get a ton more of R&B uh, artists. But the one album that dominated the year, and it was released so late in the year, but it dominated was Whitney Houston, The Bodyguard, I Will Always Love You, the Dolly Parton redo. But that entire Bodyguard album was just like, just so assertive in its dominance. And, uh, you know, so, 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 so the, 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 the 1992, I know the bodyguard takes us further past the June mark, but I'm cheating all over the place here to give you this kind of 1991, 1992 coalition. They both deserve their own year of celebration because both of them were so, um, impactful. You don't get to 92 without all of the events of 91. Without 91 and the relaunches and the, the fighting to keep X-Force in the picture, which then gets its own big, you know, push and then X-Men and, 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 and the giant focus on those books and those creators and then pivoting for them all to work together and Image Comics to launch as successfully as it did and then to leave as much in it, its wake as it did. And again, to go from Terminator all the way to like the other side where it was really a lot more a lot more poppy. I'd say Batman and, and Home Alone are extreme, extremely poppy, uh, uh, you know, IPs, you know, properties, stuff that's very pop oriented. Um, and, and, and so, so, I mean, two distinct, distinct years, but they, they need each other terribly to build on each other. Again, especially the music scene, the music scene and the comic book scene really, really resemble each other because when you look at the charts in 1992 again uh, uh Soundgarden and 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 Stone Temple Pilots and Pearl Jam just follow what everything that Nirvana laid down in 1991 and whether you like grunge or not you were probably either dressing a little like it or listening to some of it whether it was on your radio or buying the CDs or going to the concerts you did you know it don't deny it we don't believe you okay <laughs> so again music sports uh comic books that this was, uh, the 1992 that I remember and that, 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 that I draw so much inspiration from. And that, that really to me has just the greatest impact. So to wrap it all up with a nice, like Tootsie Roll rapper, 1992 kicked all sorts of major amazing ass. You know what? I know it. Your mom knows it. Uh, of course, a guy named Quentin Tarantino also got his start. Reservoir Dogs hit the theaters and got everybody buzzing. Mr. White, Mr. Pink. It was all uh, hugely kind of just out of nowhere. We'd never heard of this guy who's this brand new voice, this brand new uh, director that, that has this kind of grimy little uh, movie with these really interesting verbose characters and this penchant for insane, uh, almost torturous violence. There is no Pulp Fiction and all the rest, Kill Bill, Foxy Brown, all the stuff that I love uh, without the brilliance of Reservoir Dogs, which started out in the art houses out here in Los Angeles and New York and got people buzzing. I remember specifically having a conversation in the spring of 1992 
with Jim Lee, just about Reservoir Dogs. Have you seen it? Have you seen it? We both were catching ourselves up, talking about, wow, can't believe this. This is awesome. It comes out of nowhere. Who is this guy? Uh, a very, you know, obviously memorable name in in one Quentin Tarantino. So whether it was the Dream Team, Image Comics, the death of Superman, uh, we, we, we packed it all in. We packed it all in. That was an incredible year. And it all started in 1991, which took us to this incredible, insane place. Here is how one website described 1992. 1992's pop culture can be described as the pinnacle of pop culture of the 90s. Everything that made the 90s a memorable era is somehow connected to 1992. Technology became more advanced. Cable TV allowed you to watch sports at any time, and the internet was knocking on our door. And then it goes on to list many of the different things that I had shared with you, uh, you know, from from Batman Returns to The Bodyguard to Reservoir Dogs to, uh, you know, the ongoing uh, success of the Seattle music, which was, you know, again, uh, pushed pushed forward by Nirvana and uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit. And uh, so, so just... Uh, what a fun year. Uh, the technology part is because Microsoft released a new vi- version of Windows. And uh, I mean, look, you look back at these different years and I certainly believe, again, where comic books are 30 years later is a direct result of everything that was going on from that six month, that 12-month period, June 1991, June 1992. Every, all of the tracks were laid down so that the train could run. And, uh, and it's run us all the way here. Comic books, those comic books have made their way to the screen. I mean, when you look over at the Marvel end of things and you see Venom and you've seen Cable and Domino and Deadpool, I mean, the 90s have had a remarkable, rem- amazing track record on film in, in recent years in adapting the, the, the events of 91 and 92. So, you know, what, what does the future bring? Will there be a new age of image comics? I know right now I'm working to give it to you. I met, talked to, discussed, have interacted with the director of Prophet, Sam Hargrave, the star of Prophet, Jake Gyllenhaal. I am trying desperately to, to, to uh, you know, uh, I mean, it, I won't be the reason the movie gets made or doesn't get made. I'm just rooting it on and, and, and cheering as it as it holds tighter and, 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 and gets uh, more towards this inevitable green light. You don't see me out there all the time giving these updates because there are way more important people on the project than me. Uh, Unlike other kind of independent comic book films where you have a voice that is kind of taken over and taken to be kind of the ambassador for that brand. While I created Profit, I will not be the most important voice in a Profit film. And so whether it's the studio or this amazing director in Sam Hargrave or obviously the accomplished uh talents of, of, of ridiculous, you know, uh, ridiculously accomplished, uh, Jake Gyllenhaal. It, that, that's, I'm not going to be at any point bigger on the production than, than they are. What I can tell you is all systems are go as of this most recent recording, we are in the best possible place. The next thing would be, you know, to, to report to you that the movie, uh, is about to begin filming. And that is an update I hope to bring to you sometime sometime before the end of this year. That's as close as I will will cut it. You guys, the 90s. This was the year, 1991 to 1992. This was the year that defined 
an entire decade. Everything that happens from them is either in, in a, a growth from what happened here, an offshoot, or a reaction. It's, it's one of those things. So you guys, thank you always for weighing in, listening in, sharing your enthusiasm for this show. I, I cannot even begin to tell you how much that I appreciate all of the ways that you guys express your um, enjoyment of the show. One of those ways, and so many of you participate in it, is that you guys are <laughs> are, are are always leaving the coolest messages for me on our platform, on our, on our different podcast platforms. And, and as I told you almost now a full year ago, when we uh, were closing out season two, starting season three, this matters so much. It really helps uh, set us apart on the platform. And you guys are, um, your voices and your, your, your commentary and your enthusiasm and the five stars, they all really help, uh, you know, keep this thing going and reach a broader audience. Today, I'm going to read you two, two wonderful uh, reactions that you guys have happened to read, uh, uh, leave for me. When you guys leave these, I read them at the end of every show. If this is your first show, just know that when you leave a comment um, on like the Apple platform or leave a positive uh, uh, review, I read it here on the air at the end of every show like I'm about to. This is, uh, man, who is this from? I got I to see this. This, this, uh, you got to see what you guys, oh, this is Bill Youngblood. Is there a better name? Maybe, maybe Rob X-Force. Bill Youngblood left five stars. If you love comics, you will love this podcast. Bill Youngblood writes, the enthusiasm in which Rob speaks of comic books is contagious. I have been a fan since the X-Force and Youngblood days. My comic knowledge begins in the 90s, but thanks to Rob, it now extends well into the 80s and the 1970s. Thank you, Rob. No, thank you, Bill. I love sharing this. Look at that. This comment is really mired deeply into the subject that we just covered for two different episodes, 1991 and 1992. Thank you so much, Bill Youngblood. Thank you for that. This is sent by the Spirit of Eden. Five stars, and it says, always a treat. Thanks, Rob, for this excellent podcast. It is always a treat to hear Rob's stories and insight. His enthusiasm, knowledge, and love of comics and pop culture is infectious. And he always stays positive about life's experiences. Thank you, Rob. Thank thank you, Spirit of Eden, and thank you, Bill Youngblood. These are really wonderful um, expressions, and I, I appreciate them so much. I never, ever take you guys for granted. I roll up to this mic each and every time trying to see if I can bring a new perspective to a subject and tie it into something that is going on today. And like the uh, previous two-parter that we did when we dissected the absolute uh, intensity of 1986, 1991-92 was just as, if not more, impactful on the culture and setting everything um, up that is going to follow. Stay tuned. Our decade series is going to continue. I'm going to throw you a curveball. You may or may not have seen the 90s coming. You did not see 86 coming. This other one is going to be a blast. Um, I am just trying to peel the orange uh, layer by layer. I guess onion, orange, figure it out. Which one is it, Liefeld? I'm peeling it all back. Onions and oranges and trying to give you juicy slices and multiple layers of how everything kind of connects and, and propels where we're at right now today. And, and, and I trust you, I trust, trust me 
that you are going to totally dig the upcoming episode. Stay tuned. I am all over social media. I am on Twitter and Instagram. On Twitter, I am at Rob Liefeld, that little A. And then Robert, sorry, it's at Robert Liefeld, R-O-B-E-R-T-L-I-E-F-E-L-D, Robert Liefeld on Twitter. On Instagram, I'm at Rob Liefeld, just R-O-B-L-I-E-F-F-E-L-D. Both of those have blue check marks behind them. That tells you that I am real, that I am the real deal, that you are talking to me, not a an imposter, a phony, a guy who gets the spelling off just slightly enough to maybe you didn't notice it the first time you glanced at it. But uh, the blue checks really tell you that I am the genuine article and I love hearing your comments, your messages, your direct uh, messages, your DMs. Um, I, I love interacting with you in all the different manners, the mentions. Uh, let's Let's keep talking. I love just sharing with you guys on a daily basis. Over on Facebook, this page, Rob Observations with Rob Liefeld, has a dedicated page. Leave a message, like it, we'll get back to you, we'll, we'll respond. I, I, I check it out uh, on a daily basis. I am over on the Rob Observations with Rob Liefeld fan page over on Facebook. Also on Facebook, I have a fan group. It's called, uh, it's not a page, it's a group. It's Rob Liefeld, an extreme group, okay? And uh, we would love to have you over there. I am the administrator. There's some other Liefeld groups. That is the one that I am the administrator of. And there is a gentleman named Terry. That, that We are the only two administrators on that site. That is where you know that you have reached us. So Rob Liefeld, an extreme group, covers uh, all my entire career and kind of all the tethers of, of the things that I've been able to interact with and touch. So join us over there. It's, we, we're always having a good time. Lots of sharing, tons of material each and every day. Uh, so find me. I'm there. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. Look for me. Here's the deal. This is the part of the show where we slow it down and I express to you in the most enthusiastic way that I can that you need to take care of yourself. You need to chill out. Uh, if that's, if that's a, a, a glass of wine, if that's a, if that's a bud, if that's a Mountain Dew, if that's just a cool glass of water, if that's a donut, a cookie, a potato chip, if it's a brownie, a cupcake, a, a, a bowl of ice cream, gelato, whatever it is, Doritos, hamburgers, fast food, gourmet, you name it, treat yourself, chill out, relax, watch some cool content, some cool uh, movies, television, hey, YouTube videos, that's what my kids watch, right? Uh, trailers, read a great comic book, read a great book. Just uh, just chill out, get get the get the rest and the relaxation, and kind of get the the buzz that you need to reengage. Okay, because it's important to refuel with cool stuff, pictures, stories, ideas. Uh, it's what I do. I, I I my my preference is to plop down on my big old beanbag with a stack of comics. That is when I know I am in my most happy place. I am just reading comic books and connecting with them in a way that I maybe wasn't able to over the course of several days, but that one day, those few hours of just jamming and going back down, you know, comic book material that I love, let's say the entirety of the Superboy and the Legion run from the 70s, I'll just plow through those. Not plow, I'll, I'll really enjoy them, but I'll just keep rifling issues out of the box. Really good stuff. Can be a great refresher, a great re-energizer. I encourage you uh, in every way possible to take care of yourself spiritually, emotionally, mentally, and physically, Okay. I'm rooting for you. You know I am. Uh, my family is. We dig you guys. I love seeing you. Uh, if by chance you're seeing this or listening to this uh, on the weekend of June 9th, 10th, 11th, I am going to be in North Carolina. I hope to see you guys at Acme Comics in Greensboro. 
I haven't been to Greensboro, I believe, ever. I haven't been uh, back to North Carolina in five years. I was at the uh, Charlotte Con 11 years ago. So so North Carolina is not someplace that is uh, kind of on my, my, my routine, but I am trying to make it uh, a special date on the calendar this weekend. I hope to see you. Acme Comics in Greensboro. I'll be there uh, from noon on on Saturday. I got nothing to do. I'll just stay there the whole time. Uh, and, and I'll have a good time. And I hope, hope, to, hope to see you if you are in the area. So that wraps this episode. I would ask you to circle back, uh, drive, drive back around my way. I am going to be here waiting to talk to you. And we are definitely going to jam together again real soon.